Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the distinct pleasure and indeed honor of speaking with Dr. Francis Clooney, who is the Pakman Professor of Divinity and Professor of Comparative Theology at Harvard. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. I'm delighted to be able to be with you on this very distinguished podcast, and I know um, you have lots of interest, in, and um, I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be with you, so thanks. As am I. Um, uh, someone like, for, for those of you out there listening, I mean, surely the scholarly world would know, but for those of you out there listening who are maybe continuing studies folks or, or heritage learners or just interested in this stuff, uh, people like Frank Clooney, I've been citing in my paper since I was an undergrad. <laughs> so let's just say um, uh, he's a very established and distinguished scholar. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, a really interesting publication called Reading the Hindu and Christian Classics. Um, in addition to having someone of, of Dr. Clooney's caliber on the podcast, this is particularly uh, um, um, exciting for me as we are broadening the sweep of this podcast, one's called New Books in Hindu studies to now new books in Indian religions, uh, whether it's uh, um, Christianity in India, whether it's uh, comparisons between Hinduism and Christianity. Either way, it really adds some nice texture to our uh, journey into the world of, of Indian religions. Um, so this book was published in uh, 2020 by the University of Virginia Press. And uh, the title is not a misnomer, uh, Reading the Hindu and Christian Classics. It is about, and the subtitle is very telling, Why and How Deep Learning Still Matters. Before we dive into um, the content of your book, Frank, would you tell us a bit about uh, your work, your trajectory, sort of maybe what you do and how you got to this point? So it's a long story. as I'm getting older, it's a longer story all the time. But um, for a long time, I've been uh, crossing the boundaries, I think, between the worlds of Hindu studies and my own Catholic Christian background. Um, I'm a Catholic priest. I'm in a religious order known as the Jesuits or Society of Jesus. But early on in my training, I spent two years in Kathmandu, Nepal, teaching at St. Xavier's School. And that experience, all the boys I taught were Hindu and Buddhist was for me an eye-opening experience as a young man, uh, giving me a sense of the much wider world, and in particular, the world of Nepal, India, South Asia. And I think instinctively from that time on, I realized that I needed to be in the position of learning from the Hindu traditions of of Nepal and India, as well as um, thinking about my own tradition to which I belong. And so it started a long pattern, you know, this is in the mid-70s, of finding my way back and forth across the boundary between traditions. Uh, As a graduate student, University of Chicago in the South Asia department um, in the early 80s, I also had the opportunity to go to Madras, Chennai in South India and continue studying, working with some traditional teachers and so on. And the more I did this, the more I realized on the one hand, you need absolute rigor. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to be able to read your text for me, Sanskrit and Tamil. But also, you have to be in a reflective position where you are constantly reassessing where you're coming from, 
who you are who do this study. I've never really bought into the idea of a neutral scholar who's sort of from nowhere. Yes, a professional scholar who really knows what they're talking about, but not a neutral person who sort of floats in, but rather somebody who um, is there as a whole person, cognizant of their background, their expectations, their prejudices, and so on. And so all of this over the decades has opened up for me this possibility of, of studying classical Hindu traditions, but being mindful of the fact of where I'm coming from when I do such study, the back and forth. That's fascinating. We've uh, recently had on the podcast um, Chris Chapel, who's also at a, a, a theological uh, institution. We've also spoken to a number of scholars of um, of yoga who may also be practitioners. And we've talked about, you know, the, the emigidic divide or, or the extent to which one can be a scholar practitioner. Um, and so I'd be interested in your perspective as to whether or not that is more the case for one doing theology than, say, religious studies. Uh, that being the the the, um, the 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 impetus, the necessity of 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 factoring in one's um, belief system, one's predilections, one's cultural background. Is is that more the case when one does theology? Would you say, or would you say that um, ideally is the case for anyone studying religion? I, I think. Uh, first of all, I would make the question that I don't want to make it seem as if there's a sharp divide, you know, a chasm between religious studies and theology, because these pe- people use these terms in different ways and they have different meanings for different people. But I do think that there's a certain uh, history to the study of religion in the 20th century. Uh, recently at the American Academy of Religion, Jose Cabazon, who's president, gave a wonderful plenary presidential address about the kind of the history of the history of religions in the 20th century with respect to the study of Buddhism and often defining, uh, not Jose, but the uh, scholars defining the field in terms of moving away from a theological and Christian basis. But when I think of using uh, theological terminology or uh, the idea that there's an element of faith, community, commitment, participation involved, that theology is a very rich term, which I personally don't believe is only a Christian term and, and needn't be defined only by the Christian, but rather the, the, the ideal of a person who is a scholar of the traditions, but also a kind of spiritual practitioner. Uh, the, the new journal Tarka, uh, you may have seen a recent uh, first issue of Tarka about spiritual practitioners. Uh, I think maybe even Chris Chappell is in there but other, other scholars of India, Ram Dasnam, and so on like that, talking about the crossover between spiritual discipline, the intellectual awakening that comes through study, and then doing hardcore academic work uh, with rigorous standards, both for publishing and then also for working with students. So I think theology is a term that kind of opens up the possibility of, on the one side, the faith, and the other side, the understanding, and the fact that these need not be seen as contrary. Being a person of faith does not ruin one's scholarship, and being a scholar doesn't mean that you have to blot out or leave behind commitments you may have grown up with or adopted as an adult and the like. I appreciate that perspective. Uh, to be honest, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it me, perhaps it's a bit easier to compartmentalize in the sense that I study uh, Sanskrit narrative literature, but uh, I assure you that, in my case at least, 
much of my ability to decode and interpret these texts comes from a deep philosophical and spiritual insight that well transcends the boundaries of these texts and that are ultimately born of experience and practice. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating sort of dance between the two that occurs. And as you say, each has to be done well on their own terms, but uh, they can sort of cross-pollinate each other, seems to me. Yeah, I, mean, um, I would just add there that I found, um, you know, both the, the, the Catholic tradition in which I have grown up with the medieval theologians in particular, people like uh, Aquinas, Bonaventure, back to St. Augustine, uh, Luther and Calvin, later figures, all stressing participation in that which you study. And then I go to India and reading Shankara, Ramanuja, uh, studying Yoga Sutras, uh, reading the, the hymns of the Alvars, the commentaries of the Alvars, stressing study and participation. And it just seems that um, these worlds are both confirming that there is this deeper form of study that involves the entire person as part of what one does. And I would say that my perception is places like the American Academy of Religion today, there's increasing level of comfort with this idea that who you are is part of how you study. So for some people, it's a matter of postmodern uh, you know, confession, talking about where you're coming from. But for others to realize that many people are personally invested in what they study and that that should be able to be talked about. And for me, it's confirmed by the two traditions that uh, that I belong to and study respectively. Fascinating. And so for those who may not be uh, uh, familiar with your scholarly work, what is it you do with these texts? Are you looking uh, at one tradition to understand another? Are you? Uh, could you tell us a bit about the comparative enterprise that, you, that you've been engaged in? Yeah, I think I mentioned at the beginning that um, my elemental primordial experience was, was going to Kathmandu as a young man. And I think it, it, the context of that was St. Xavier's School, which was a school founded at the invitation of the King of Nepal in 1950. And I think the, the general understanding was that it was to be an educational institution, even though the Jesuits in India had a long tradition of also trying to convert people. But I think by the time I got there in the 70s, there was a sense of education, reciprocal respect, and learning across the boundaries. And I think for me, as again, as a young man, it opened the door to say, um, I need to be open-minded. I need to be here to listen and to learn as well as to communicate something that I happen to know. And I think I, me I mentioned that again because it carried over to my graduate studies at Chicago and then my research and teaching first at Boston College and now at Harvard over the decades, that I don't start out, I do start out with presuppositions and surely with social constrictions and biases and so on, because we all have those. But when I, when I pick up a text of Hindu tradition to study, I'm not looking for an answer to a particular question. I'm not looking to prove something. And I'm certainly not doing like a competitive thing about which tradition is better. But for me, rather than theorizing about the unity of all religions or the difference of all religions and so on, what I try to do is say, let me pick up and read, let's say this text of Ramanuja uh, with the commentary of Vedanta Deshika, let's say Gita Bhashya with the commentary of Deshika, or this hymn of the Alvars, uh, Namalvar with the medieval commentaries. Let me kind of dive into that world and start learning from these great thinkers and supplementing it when I can, you know, my trips to India, 
visiting the, the relevant temples, visiting Sri Rangam and other places, holy places, get involved in the world, and then sort of say, now where does this leave me as a Catholic Christian? What ideas and reminiscences and pro provocations of my own tradition come to mind? And I'll inevitably start thinking of similarities or differences that then I can talk about. So I don't start out with a theoretical frame or with a sense that I have this proposition to prove or disprove by looking at them, but rather I go, I plunge in, I study, and then out of that, I find some resemblance or recognition back in the tradition to which I grew up in, to which I belong. So that's really- good. No, please go ahead. I was just gonna say, and that's sort of the, the phenomenological description of what I mean by comparative theology. So whereas theology for most people is dedicated to study in their own tradition, my idea is that by way of analogy, at least, the same kind of practice of faith-seeking understanding, openness to participation, to commitment, to conversion, to learning at a deeper level is now extended across boundaries. And it's not a closed enterprise where, again, I'm just looking to prove something or to rationalize what I find but it's a process of and really entering into the mystery of the spirit, uh, the mystery of God, as one might say, and, and seeing where it goes from there and playing with it and, and enjoying it. It's fascinating on a number of fronts. Um, let's talk about um, the first part of that uh, in terms of uh, the engagement of text and the methodology, really through the frame of perhaps the subtitle of the book, Why and How Deep Learning Still Matters. You know, what is deep learning and how does that come about? And, and tell us more about that. Well, the two, the two of the models that I work with and, and mention in the book, one on the, on the Christian side is the, first of all, the example of the medieval uh, great commentators commenting on scripture, commenting on uh, classic texts like the, uh, the sentences of Peter Lombard, the classic medieval textbook, um, but also what's called Lexio Divina, like divine reading or sacred reading. And this is really you know, out of, but not only in the monasteries, where the monks with very few books on hand would often reread the same books again and again, uh, and, and make notations and, and marginal annotations and illustrations and so on. And the idea that you, you have to keep going deeper into the word of God or the word of a thinker who is trying to reflect the word of God. And that you're not to be, as, as uh, Paul Griffiths, great scholar, has written a book called Religious Reading. As he points out, you're not a consumer where you're strip mining the other tradition. You're not just darting in to grab what you want and run off with it but you make a commitment, you enter into it, and in a sense, you, you surrender to it so that it may teach you. On the Hindu side, I mean, I think the classic model I've often pointed to is uh, Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, uh, Yajnavalkya te teaching about Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana, Darshana. And the idea that you have to have Shravana, and that could be oral teaching or in our day, perhaps uh, reading, you have to encounter the text and pay attention to it. The Manana, is the second stage, but not the last stage, where you think about it, you question it, you have Purvapaksha Siddhanta, you go back and forth, you struggle with it, you look at commentaries, you, you, you think as best you can. But that's not the end of it, because there's Nididhyasana, where then you have to sort of, um, I mean, Christians would say, take it to prayer, but you, you, you go into a deeper meditative relationship to what you've been studying, where it, it sort of comes together again 
beyond the legitimate questions, historical questions, contextual questions, literary questions, you go a step further and then you begin to really understand it more deeply, which I think then, you know, Darshana in the, in the Upanishad is, is both the first and the last in the list of these four. You see it. And when you see it, then it all sort of clicks for you and it has this transformative possibility for you such that then you can speak and your word becomes the kind of shravana that students can pick up on. So it kind of goes in circles. But I think both the, uh, and I say the Catholic tradition, the Christian tradition, but if you go back and read someone like Plato, I think, or Plotinus, the, the notions of deep reading and belonging, uh, Pierre Adot, Philosophy as a Way of Life, a wonderful book also about how the ancient philosophers, uh, you know, to put it uh, simply, practice what they, thought. They, they didn't see this simply as an academic exercise, but they tried to live a life according to their ideas. So all of this converges in saying that the, the way of reading and the way of studying across religious boundaries, for me, Hindu Christian, but it could be Jewish Buddhist or Muslim Taoist or whatever, is a way of uh, deep, slow study that you enter into it, you go deeper and deeper, you see things, you learn, you transform, and then if you're lucky enough, you write, you teach, and so on from there. That quite resonates. Um, I remember uh, a moment where, this might have been when I was doing um, lit review for my doctoral program, I came across this notion that, that perhaps in, I think get a book about Mary, but this notion that, that one should spend time with the text that they read, uh, what that they study, and um, <laughs> for me, it was great to see it in print consciously. Because what I've been doing for for months at that point was reading and rereading the Devi Mahapya, and it's it's a practice that yeah. I spend time in my mind. I think I think of it as spending time in the story world, becoming familiar with it, yeah. internalizing it, and it's comparable to to um, knowing a person on a personal level or knowing something about a person. Right, right. Yeah, and I would just uh, confirm that totally by, by saying that I think, you know, the, the relationship between the teacher, the teaching, the teaching as oral, the teaching as written is very rich. And, and while I'm not of the strict historic who say that you can never learn from a text unless you have an authentic teacher, although that's extremely valuable, there is the voice of the person who's communicating with you through what you read. You're encountering a tradition, you're encountering the visionary author, um, and therefore you have to enter into this humane dialogical relationship, which cannot be trivialized or, or done quickly. And, and the whole point is, is to be able to go deeper. And the problem, of course, for, for many um, younger people today, I think, uh, including doctoral students, is often there's a timeline, this, you know, the clock is running, you have to finish, you have to produce articles, you have to get your dissertation out, and so on and so on and so on. And, and hardly time to take a breath and do the deeper study or reading that you and I, I think, you know, realize. And, and I think a lot of people realize it's important. Does, does our fast-moving life support or enable us to do the kind of study that the text we're studying expect of us? Well, this is, this is the thing as well. Um... I think for a number of reasons, I'm from a different uh, time, epoch, era, but the, the ability to put your phone on airplane mode or turn it off, God forbid, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the ability to, to sort of, uh, you know, part of, part of the fruit of COVID is just things uh, slowing down a bit. 
um, people staying still a bit more than typical. Yeah. Um, but that that sort of, um, from my perspective, uh, the, there are great advantages indeed of being in the information age. Uh, the, 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 the great pitfall is that um, we, in looking at things as information to be sort of consumed, it's, it, it creates the handicap of looking at things for transformation to be digested, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And to have that different relationship to the factoids coming into your eyeballs, mm-hmm. right? So you have to switch off the Twitter brain, switch off the social media brain, switch off the consumer brain and think of it as spending time with someone. It's a very different mode of being. And I think um, what fascinates me, I mean, the work is innately fascinating, but it's, it's it fascinates me that you, you are articulating um, much of what I've just sort of internalized over the years. Um, and it's, it's really intriguing to see it um, in print, to be honest. Maybe we should tell um, our readers a little bit about the structure of the work. Yeah, so, um, and let me just preface uh, turning to the book, reading the Hindu and Christian classics, um, by saying that I totally confirm your point about the, um, you know, the, that while the last year and the COVID and the pandemic are absolutely devastating, you know, the human cost, the lives, the destruction, the difficulties are terrible. For those of us who were lucky enough, um, you know, not, not to die of COVID or perhaps not to lose close family members, to have jobs that continue even by Zoom, it's also been wonderful because, as you just said, uh, we've been forced to slow down and forced to spend time at home and forced to stop running to airports and running around. And in this kind of privileged condition where life goes on, even amid COVID, to suddenly realize that many of the things I was occupying my time with, I don't need to, I can't. And therefore, all those books on the shelves that have been speaking to me, now they're saying, now you have time for me. And to be able to open that up, I think is really wonderful. I would often compare it to like, you know, when you're driving through the countryside, and it's one thing to be driving through in your car at the speed limit. And the other thing is if you park and go walking in the woods, you notice so much more so differently. And I think part of it is to slow down and notice things differently. So I think this is sort of an inspiration of the book. Um, I, I, I recount at the beginning kind of the anecdote behind the book that I had finished a previous book around 2014, I think it came out, uh, His Hiding Places Darkness. Uh, and this was a book reading the mystical poetry of the Alvars, uh, Nam Alvar with commentators from South India on the absence of the beloved, and reading this with the Song of Songs of the Bible interpreted by Bernard of Clairvaux and other monastics in the Christian Middle Ages. And it was very poetic, very um, mystical. And I thought I should do something different now, like use the other side of my brain for a while. So I literally pulled off my shelf, and it's still on my shelf in the room where I'm speaking to you, uh, these three crumbling volumes that had been there since I was a grad student some decades ago, the Jaimini and Nyayamala. And Jaimini and Nyayamala by Madhavacharya around 1400 was a concise summation of all the adhikaranas or cases of Mimamsa, the poor Mimamsa, which I had worked on for my dissertation in 1500 sutras or shlokas um, and reducing the entirety of the 900 or so cases of the mimamsa to 1500 shlokas in the most concise form. And I said, 
nobody, to my knowledge, has written anything much about this book. It's never been translated. So why don't I do something with it? And I started fussing around with it. And it's marvelous. Um, you know, it's one of those books that you get into. And I, I can see that Purva Mimamsa ritual interpretation of the Veda, legal cases and so on, is not for everybody. Uh, definitely not for most people, perhaps. Um, but for those of us who get into it, it opened up a world of thinking, both about the Veda as ritual, the Veda as text, and then ways of, of concise argumentation in medieval India uh, that connected to all kinds of other issues. And I, I was translating parts of it and reading it and enjoying it. And then about three quarters of the way through, I start thinking to myself, if I publish a book on the Jaimini and the Ayamala, interpreting it according to the legal and ritual background and so on like that, how many people in the world will be interested in this book? And then I was thinking, I probably know all five of them. Maybe there's a sixth or a seventh that I don't actually know. Um, I could just send them copies and that would be the end of it. And so I began to, to think that um, there was this crisis that on the one hand, um, not simply crumbling books on the shelf, but as you alluded to earlier, in the 21st century, we have more opportunities to know more about all the different religious traditions of the world than ever before in human history. And incredible resources that are, are developing and extending each day. More and more can be learned in incredible depth. Uh, people simply studying can open up vast universes of learning and there's so much wonderful scholarship going on. But on the other hand, as alluded to earlier, our lives are going faster and faster. And we can download 100 PDFs from the web in the next three hours or something, and then have no time to read them. And we can have the Sanskrit and the Tamil and the Chinese and the Arabic and the Hebrew and the Latin, and no time to read these texts. And so it's this kind of odd, frustrating situation where life is speeding up, and there's kind of a movement, sometimes ideological, away from study toward lived religion, toward ethnographic research, uh, and so on. And some of that's quite legitimate. But on the other hand, there's this kind of pressures to not spend your time in study when the possibility of study is ever greater. So I was confronted with this possibility as this Jaimini and the Ayamala was kind of taunting me into writing the book or not. And I decided that the, what I really needed to write about was about this problem of so much to learn and so little time. The original title of the book, not reading the Hindu and Christian classics, was Slow Learning and Fast Times. Uh, the publisher talked me out of it, but Slow Learning and Fast Times. And I wanted to face this problem. So I started um, thinking about how to do this, how to, to make communicate this in a relatively small book. It's a lovely book from the University of Virginia. It's only, it's not even 200 pages long. And I was invited fortuitously by the University of Virginia to give the Richard Lectures in, 19, uh, in 2017. And I gave these three lectures on three nights in uh, early, I guess, late October of 2017 in the wonderful Religious Studies Department at Virginia and, and, and tried to spell out this project in terms of three lectures, three themes, slow learning in fast times, about being instructed by what we learn and read, learning the truth through what we're instructed by, and then being called to participate in what we have learned to be true and been instructed by. And so I, I took these themes, instruction, doctrine, participation, and tried to spell them out, and it and ended being a hopeless uh, perennial comparativist 
with three pairs of texts. Um, and I'll just tell you briefly, and then I'll take a breath. But the Jaimini and the Ayamala, this uh, beautiful Mimamsa text, with a, a, a catechism that was extremely popular in 16th, 17th, 18th century Europe, the great catechism of Peter Canisius, who was a Roman Catholic during the fierce years of the uh, Reformation, but partly inspired by Martin Luther's catechism and the effort to take the Christian faith and put it in brief form, concise form, so that people could understand it. In some ways, very, very, very different from Mimamsa Nyaya Prakasha, uh, sorry, and the uh, Jaimini and Nyayamala, but both texts trying to simplify and present the faith so that people could understand it and be instructed by it. Then I moved uh, to a second level. I use Apaya Dikshita's text, the Siddhanta Lesha Sangraha, which is a in-house Advaita Vedanta text from around 1600, perhaps, in which Apaya Dikshita takes up all the issues that have vexed and challenged Advaita thinkers, not regarding what the Buddhists say or the Nayakas, the logicians say or others say, but among ourselves about the nature of Brahman, Jiva, Atman, Maya, uh, Ishwara, the world, and so on, and kind of fine-tune looking at these to come at the truth of Advaita for insiders. And it's a wonderful long book, and I, I tried to study sections of that with this text that I mentioned earlier, the sentences of Peter Lombard, which was an effort in the early uh, uh, 12th century, I suppose, to again, put in sentence form, namely statements, the teachings of the Catholic and Christian tradition. Lombard saying in that era, th there's way too much to learn. The students don't have time to learn anymore. So I'll put it in succinct form for insiders to the Catholic faith. So Apayadikshita, insiders to Advaita, Lombard, insiders to the Catholic faith. And then we can begin to expound what does it mean by creation? What does the tradition mean by uh, salvation and so on? So these kind of getting at the truth inside a tradition. And then the final pair, and then I'll, I'll take a breath, uh, was to say, but traditions don't want simply to instruct you or teach you the truth. They want to change you and they want to draw you in. And so in this case, I, I chose to turn away from the Latin and the um, Sanskrit to go vernacular. And on the Hindu side, I went back to my studies in Sri Vaishnavism uh, to one of these uh, books um, that I think in the 14th century uh, was trying to summarize the, the great Alvar, Namalvar's Tiruvaimori, the great uh, classic work in the Alvar tradition. Manavala Mamuni was one of the great teachers of a few centuries later in a hundred verses, the Nutrandadi, trying to summarize the essence in the same Tamil style as Namalvar wrote, but to do so in a way that would pull out the essence of the hundred songs so that if you would recite this work, sing it, recite it in your mother tongue Tamil, you will get pulled into the world of Namalvar and you'll become part of that world and then you'll keep studying it all. And so it's, it's yet another text of summary and introduction like all the others. And I paired it very paradoxically, because most people wouldn't do this, um, with uh, Louis de Montfort, a Catholic saint of the 18th century, writing in French, the vernacular of France, saying that the rosary, the, the simple rosary, the 50 beads of the rosary, uh, Catholics have the rosary, Buddhists have the rosary, Hindus have the rosary, the malas, and so on, but that the, the rosary understood in terms of the mysteries of the Christian faith 
every time you run through the beads saying your Hail Marys, in a sense, you are recapitulating the entire faith. But because you're saying it and imagining the scenes and praying to the Virgin Mary, it pulls you in and you're no longer a spectator to the truth, but you become part of it. And both he and Manavala Mamuni are saying, don't just read this like a text. You have to sing it, participate in it, recite it, and then the truth will become the truth of you. So those are the three pairs that are, are making up the substance of the book. And again and again, the theme is the subtitle, um, Deep Learning Still Matters. These are not texts to be taken trivially or passed over. Got it. I, got, I figured out what it's about. Now I'll run to another one. But each of them, in a sense, demands a lifetime. And of course, I didn't do that in a 200-page book. But nonetheless, said I'm opening doors, and anyone who wants to could, could walk through these doors and find their way into these texts and learn from them. So that's sort of the dynamics of the book, the three pairs of three texts based on the lectures that became the book. One of the favorite analogies that come to mind when teaching religion in general and, and uh, Hinduism in particular um, is the distinction between teaching music theory and, and jamming or, or playing music or the other analogies being nutritionist versus a connoisseur of food or a chef. Right. And, and the mode of inquiry, of course, the mode of scholarship is the mode of understanding something intellectually and, and arguably objectively. And nevertheless, if the object of uh, our understanding is something experiential, mm-hmm. then there's a tension there where uh, arguably one needs to have a good sense of melody, pitch, and rhythm to understand music theory well. No, there is this interplay there. Right, right. Um, And that's something that I touch on a great deal in teaching and my own studies and and even on the podcast from time to time. I like that your publisher talked you out of slow reading for fast times. Uh, Because, you know, who the hell wants to slow down? How unsexy is that? But but deep reading, you know, that's a good thing. (laughs) Deep reading for shallow times. Um, Yeah. and I think I would just add, I mean, I think particularly in terms of the third pair of texts that I just mentioned last, the Manavala Mamuni and Louis de Montfort, it is like going from studying cookbooks to actually cooking a meal and enjoying it or reading literary theory about poetry and trying to write poetry yourself or um, uh, spectating a sport and participating in a sport, playing a you know, game, actually. So that participation level, whereas the other texts, I think, call you to participation in different ways. So the instructive text, the catechism and the Jaimini and Nyayamala are asking you to stretch and use every part of your mind to memorize, to analyze, to think of the tradition given to you. And then the Vedanta text, um, Apayadikshita and Peter Lombard, to keep going and try to see if you can come with your tradition to some kind of harmony about what this means, not just more information, but we actually say it's true. But then the third pair is, is doing mostly what you're saying is, um, all right, now make it your life. Uh, make this who you are. And if you stop short and never get to that stage, it's like window shopping and never buying anything or um, thinking about things and never leaving your room. It, 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 there's more to be done in the study of religion. And even if one, oh, there will be a number of folks who 
engage or study such texts and they have uh, no aspiration for master experience or any of that. But nevertheless, when we look at classics in other settings, classic works of English, for example, mm. you, you learn something about the nature of the text every time you read uh, a Shakespearean work, for example. You don't, um, it's not information, it's transformation. You know how it's going to end, but that's not the point. Yeah. It's the journey. It's, it's, it's the experience that the text is inviting you uh, to participate in. And you have a deeper experience every time you pick up a work uh, of literature, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the uh, sort of to one of the thinkers that I used for my methodology for um, my dissertation, which is uh, the first book, and much of my thinking subsequently is um, the work of Umberto Eco, a great semi, great semiotician, yeah. also great lover of literature, mm-hmm. right? great reader of fiction, and very, very uh, heady and complex. Uh, thankfully, he has a very, very accessible um, a short um, summation of his thought. I think much like your book, it was the result of a, a public lecture he gave at some point, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 90s, and it's called um, Six Walks in the Fictional Woods. Uh, yes, yes. And the metaphor he uses is brilliant. It's like you have to immerse yourself into the story world, into the text. You have to, you know, uh, have a walk you know, mm-hmm. through the world and see what you notice. Um is this a book about how to read? Is that what? What is your main uh, takeaway, or what? What would one? What do you hope folks would take away from this work? Well, I think what I try to do in the book is to, on the theoretical level, you might say, emphasize the the need to read, the need to study, the expectation of traditions that the study take place. Um, and I have a whole chapter using uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations of all things to talk about how there are many texts that you can't understand unless you actually read them. So the whole kind of that agenda. But then think it would be paradoxical if I talk about this and then actually don't do any reading. So I, I try in the, the main chapters to give an accessible, clear English translations uh, to make as as easy to follow as possible, small sections, and then lead the reader through them, hoping to communicate to the reader <clears throat> that even if you are not a scholar of Mimamsa or Advaita or medieval scholastic Catholic theology, these excerpts will give you a taste and an exercise of your mind that leads you into the kinds of things that I'm talking about. So it'd be like with a literary critic who you know, not only writes about how poets do poetry, but then leads you through some poems to try to give you a sense of how Emily Dickinson or William Butler Yeats or others may have written. The examples, um, and every chapter is full of examples, is, is trying to, to draw the reader in and saying, see, you can do this. This is not as hard as you might think. But then to make it easier, because I picked six fairly either inaccessible or difficult texts. In the last chapter, I say... <clears throat> you could back up and work with simpler texts. So you don't have to read these six texts. And I actually give some examples of other texts that one might substitute um, famously, like you know, read the Bhagavad Gita, read it carefully, read it slowly, uh, take a gospel, read it carefully, read it slowly. So you don't have to start 
you know, the Himalayan mountain peak where you read only the most, you know, massive classics. But basically, it's somewhere between a cookbook, to use that analogy again, a cookbook and inviting people to dinner. So come and read with me. Um, in fact, you could forget my book and just get the texts that I am reading and read them for yourself. Um, because it, I think that's the key is that we need more readers who go deeper in their reading. There's a kind of resistance to the overheated world in which we live. And if my book opens the door to people to say, ah, not only do I think this is a good idea and I've read Clooney's book, but I actually think what he's talking about is something I can do. Maybe I'm doing it already as with yourself, but others to continue trying to do this and, and, and give, give the good example and then teach it to students and all that, that reading is really possible and important and it makes all the difference. So very broadly speaking, who would most benefit from reading this book or who's this book for? I would say probably for three audiences. Uh, so parts of it would be for uh, Indologists, uh, South Asianists, scholars of Hindu tradition, because I think, um, well, I don't do, a com I never wrote the book on the Jaimini and the Ayamala, the book uh, that I was thinking of writing, I never wrote. But in terms of opening up this text, the Jaimini and the Ayamala, uh, there would be scholars of Mimamsa who I think would you know, appreciate and, and maybe see where I'm going and studying Mimamsa. Um, much has been written about Apaya Dikshita, including some very good books recently. Um, but basically to get into medieval Vedanta thinking and appreciating that would be of interest to a philosophical Vedanta-oriented audience. And then um, as I found uh, the, the many um, Tamils, the many Vaishnava Tamils who are delighted that anyone will be reading Manavala Mamuni and doing a new translation of his text and so on, there's that audience too, so both devotional and scholarly. And then, so I think on one side, it's uh, part of this book opens the door to further study of three important Hindu traditions. Analogously, I won't go through it in detail, recovering classics of the Christian tradition that everyone pays lip service to. Those are really important books, but of course we don't read them anymore. No, they are important books and you can read them. And here's my take on uh, uh, Peter Canisius, Peter Lombard and Louis de Montfort's work and see in the 21st century, we can go back to these old fashioned books and learn from them. So that's the second audience, you have certain kind of Catholic readers, but the third audience is the audience of those who are very acutely aware of pluralism and the fact that very few of us live monolithically in one tradition only, or in this kind of monastic enclave where only people like myself exist. But we live in these worlds where we're constantly crossing boundaries. And so it's really a demonstration about how living in the pluralistic society doesn't thwart or uh, stop the work of study, but that one can learn to study across religious boundaries as well. And therefore that the, the kind of the library of the 21st century is an interreligious library. We read across the boundaries. And so the end of each chapter of the main chapters, and I'm glad you asked because I didn't stress this earlier, is not simply read Apaya Dikshita or read Peter Lombard. But the third part is now you're coming to a true, two truths, the truth of Advaita, the truth of Catholic faith. And you're not obliged to decide which is true or claim that they're the same thing, but you have two 
insightful bodies of knowledge working together in your mind now. Or with Manavala Mamuni and Louis de Montfort, you have two devotional universes that want you to be part of them now active in your mind. And trying to show that this is a legitimate kind of comparative work. It's not about methodology. It's not about proving this right and that wrong. It's not about theorizing the, the ultimate one underlying things, but rather saying, as you accumulate knowledge, you live more intelligently, perceptively, vulnerably, uh, participation-wise in a world of complexities where you are owning it because you're studying and making it all more visible to you. So an audience of, of some Hindu scholars, some Catholic Christian scholars, medievalists, and, and perhaps primarily for the comparativists. And, and then for people who care and worry about reading, uh, it may be a, a fourth category of those who just think somebody should speak up for the value of reading. I'm glad you added the fourth category on, I was going to say, this may also be of, this will be of, of great utility to anyone engaged in uh, textual study, whether formally or informally, whether um, a graduate student, perhaps a scholar, perhaps uh, an individual who's trying to make sense of a text for for their their own uh, uh, life journey or, or whatnot. Um, that fourth category is, I think, uh, uh, in my view, anyhow, equally important. How do we read? Mm-hmm. How, how do we make sense of these texts, right? Yeah, and I, th- I think in some ways there is the, um, you know, the, the underlying problem that a book like this and, and books that many of us write will appeal to the people who already read. And therefore, there is an important element of speaking. It's not quite preaching to the choir, but it's, it's uh, talking about the importance of reading to those who read, but then hopefully serving as a resource for, t- for people who teach and people who want to communicate this to the next generation of students about this can be done. This is not impossible. It is important to be able to slow down and savor these texts and do it in multiple traditions. And then somehow to say that a lot of us are in this position of knowing so much, realizing so much, seeing so much, and worrying sometimes with everybody on Facebook and Twitter and so on like that, does anybody read anymore? And, and, and I think that kind of alliance of people in, in literature, people in a history, people in religion, people in theology, philosophy, we're all kind of concerned about same of the, some of the same issues and therefore have to be able to realize some of our, our real allies are people in other fields who have the same concern about buttressing the humanities, buttressing the value of reading and trying to communicate to a younger generation, the classics ought not to be forgotten. Uh, whether they're religious or literary classics, they ought not to be forgotten because our world desperately needs this kind of wisdom now. Um, you know, we see it around us, the fragmentation, how cultures not fragment. They don't fragment when people begin to say, despite all the limitations of the canon, despite all the problems with it, still these are texts we can go back to, not reading them as the medievals did, but reading them in a 21st century way and finding endless riches in them. And as you say, it's Shakespeare, it's Plato, uh, it's the Chinese classics, it's oral traditions of Africa, I mean, and, and India. All these things need to be sort of alive for us, but none of it will work if we're not patient and humble and willing just to stop and sit down and learn. 
I'll consider the very the very um, script, descriptor of, of classic to, to be a classic is to stand the test of time and be relevant irrespective of you know the the various changes in the world in front of the text yeah um, and the, the reason why texts survive and are cherished for centuries and millennia is not because of a shortage of human ingenuity. There's lots and lots that ends up on the cutting room floor, so to speak, in every generation. But they survive because they 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 hold um, they hold wisdom and insight that 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 can be accessed uh, mm-hmm. across culture across time. Um, somebody told me recently that a um, a classic is a book that never goes out of print, and whether um, the Jaimini and the Ayamala, which was um, printed in the 19th century, whether that counts as not being out of print, I don't know. But there is something about you know the perennial value of returning to these texts. And I would just add to what you're saying. I think you know you and I are both aware of the critique of the classics. Uh, certainly at Harvard University, this is a legitimate issue about the canon was in the hands of certain elite people. Certain people's voices were heard. Certain works were saved. Other works were lost. And I think we have to be honest about that, that we're not saying that the classics are the only books worth reading or that the only thing to learn from centuries ago was simply these books that we have by educated elite writers and so on. But nonetheless, my perception is that often then we go to the other extreme of saying, well, because these books are caught up in compromising political context, because, as you might say, a certain kind of um, sinful exclusion around them of other voices. Therefore, we shouldn't read them at all. And that seems to be a tragic mistake. And I think then people end up talking to themselves about how the world should be better than it is or was and, and totally don't take up the classics at all. So to read them in a 21st century way with a sense of the price that was paid by the production of these works and not other works and trying to find new ways for new readers to take them up, but not use legitimate social religious concerns about justice or participation as reasons for saying, thank God we don't have to read these books anymore. Because I think then we lose the classics and they're classics because they always have something to teach us. If we allow voices from past centuries to teach us, even though their world, like our world, is very imperfect. Well, the, the sweet spot for me is the balancing act between tradition and innovation, and that's difficult to do. It's, it's much easier to either be a traditionalist or an innovator, but to, to, to sort of um, not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that's difficult to do. So um, uh, more often than not, a cornerstone of my teaching, particularly in my, my private online teaching, uh, is uh, Puranic narratives and epic narratives mm-hmm. and i say this uh, often i say look if if any of you think that um these narratives um aren't ensconced in a paradigm that is innately hierarchical homophobic often misogynistic xenophobic you're not paying attention obviously they are but there's much more going on in them than that mm-hmm. and sure we can critique them and acknowledge the biases yeah, yeah. Uh, the many voices of the Mahabharata I mean um, there's uh, rich voices that you would never even imagine being in the Brahmanic fold uh, yeah. and there's there's yeah. profound wisdom in all of the social stuff that we're, we're so acutely correcting in our generation. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's easy to critique it. That's easy. Do, do, critique yeah. it. 
and and acknowledge that and then have the courage to see why on earth people are have been inspired or entertained by this for millennia what's going on there yeah i, I recently um, um can i just add uh, to confirm that um when i was in high school in new york city i had done a fair amount of greek and latin it was sort of an old-fashioned graduate high school and we read a lot of homer in greek uh the iliad in particular and uh two summers ago i had occasion for a certain purpose not to go back and read the Greek, I didn't have time to do that or the energy, but a very good translation, I think Robert Fagel's translation of the Iliad. And I was amazed, um, you know, some 50 years later to go back into the Iliad and not just say, oh, it's Achilles and Hector and Patroclus and Troy. Oh, we know that story, no need to go back to it. But the rich detail, even in the horrible battle scenes, um, evoking both for me kind of, you know, visual reactions but also saying, oh my God, this is one of the wellsprings of the culture in which we still live. These heroic ideals are still alive, even though, as you were suggesting, you can then list uh, you know, a thousand things about it that you wish other voices had been heard and so on. And I, I would just add too, I think we also have the problem with religious classics specifically for religious people. So I'm, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Catholic priest, and I preach on Sunday in a parish. And uh, I'm very aware at Harvard Divinity School that the canon is problematic. The New Testament is problematic. There are those who would deconstruct it and talk about all the other things that should be talked about and all the problems of social attitudes embedded in the scriptures and so on like that. But I still think it would be a loss if we could no longer have church or temple or synagogue services in which the word came alive for a congregation. So knowing the limitations of St. Paul or this gospel or that Hebrew Bible book, yes, yes, yes. But then to be able to, to open it for a congregation and say, this is a living word. This is a word that still matters in the 21st century, despite those issues. And if we reach the point of saying, well, it's, it's also tainted and imperfect that we can no longer use this word in religious contexts, then we end up you know, the very, the very wherewithal of community begins to crumble. And I think we both have to be no longer naive, but as Paul Ricoeur talked about, a second naivete in which we can go back to these texts, no longer innocent, but able to realize that uh, even in religious contexts, they still speak powerfully of realities beyond the world around us. Uh, fascinating. Just two quick things that I, I, I want to touch on uh, in, in what you had said a moment ago. Um, 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 yes, yes, this book will attract people who read, uh, and, and, and perhaps there's this project of wanting to encourage others to read. But I, what I would say is there's tremendous value uh, um, for those who do read, uh, uh, study texts, yes, and then this will perhaps facilitate how they go about doing so or the relationship to that process. Um, uh, the, the power of an exegete or a mythologist or whatever, the power is not... Um, in their voice, uh, the, the power is in showcasing the voice of the text as best they can. And understanding that really is where the insight comes. It comes from, hey, let's look at what the text is telling us and corroborate it through a familiarity with the text. And I think that's um, very useful. The other thing that comes to mind, um, came to mind as you were speaking, is that I like the notion that a classic is a, a text that never goes out of print 
obviously there is this 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 bias towards a particular cultural paradigm, but I would add particularly for oral cultures, uh, a text that's always imprinted on the minds and hearts mm -hmm. of the people who, who carry it. And so there still is that, that um, yeah. idea. Yeah. Is there anything else about the book that you want to say before we close for today? Um, I, oh, two things. One would be self-serving to say um, it's published University of Virginia. It's a hardcover book costing $29. And that's a real impossible bargain in the 21st century. This is not, it's marvelously done with a lovely cover and it's, it's exceedingly inexpensive. And so I, I commend it on that level. The other thing I would say is that I alluded to only briefly earlier, I have, I, I took a dangerous dip into the ocean of Wittgenstein in one chapter, arguing that even if you step outside the religious context, um, Wittgenstein tells us very clearly in the best scholarship about Wittgenstein is that the only way to understand Wittgenstein is to read Wittgenstein. Um, and that the problem of anyone who's had the experience of reading philosophical investigations, now quickly tell us what it's about. And it's very hard to do because you have to go back into it and read it. And what I was trying to say is that even if you step outside the, the Hindu and Christian religious context, works of philosophy, uh, as important and persuasive as Wittgenstein also speak to this, unless you read, you cannot understand. Um, so that, that's just an angle of one thing I didn't really bring out as clearly earlier. But the main thing is, uh, I, I hope that the book is, is attractive to people. I hope that it helps a wider audience. And I hope that it helps make the case that go and do likewise. Uh, find the text to which you can devote yourself be it religious, be it Hindu, be it Christian, be it Shakespeare, be it Emily Dickinson, whoever, go, go to the masters and learn from them um, because we desperately need that. And so the book was meant to help give that a push, that important uh, fact, an important way forward. Fascinating. Hopefully this, hopefully this wonderful podcast also, because you are doing a brilliant job, Raj, in making available all these wonderful books that are written uh, to a wider audience. And, and that's a, a commendable, um, you know, honoring of books and tradition simply by the spoken word, which is a really admirable thing that you're doing for us all. Thank you very much. Um, it keeps me out of trouble, it seems. So <laughs> I shall continue for now. Um, um, and thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. You're welcome. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Francis Xavier Clooney, um, who is a, a Parkland Professor of Divinity and Professor of Comparative Theology at uh, Harvard Divinity School. We've been speaking about his fascinating 2020 publication published by the University of Virginia Press called Reading the Hindu and Christian Classics, Why and How Deep Learning Still Matters. Until next time, <laughs> keep reading, read deeply, keep listening, stay safe, take care.